0: Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Tanzanian President Mauga has only recently acknowledged COVID-19's grip on the country. Why has this been an issue? And the region is projected to experience a modest economic rebound this year. Are the predictions right? Plus, we discuss how African media covers Africa. How do we expand and deepen the coverage by African media houses? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. Tanzania has been at pains to accept there is a spiraling COVID-19 crisis. What are the consequences of President Magufuli's previous bout of denialism? Joining me to discuss Tanzania and other topics are Anu Adeoye, news editor for The Continent, Moki Makura, executive director of Africa No Filter, and Yinka Adegoke, editor for strategic initiatives at Rest of World and formerly editor of Quartz Africa. In early February, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention advised against all travel to Tanzania. It updated Tanzania's alert to Level 4, meaning transmission of the COVID-19 epidemic is high or rising rapidly. The problem, of course, is that Tanzania, until very recently, denied it had a problem. It literally stopped counting the number of infections back in April, stopping at 509 cases and 21 deaths. It took
1: President John Magufuli a surge in COVID infections, a high profile death, and persuasion from the World Health Organization to acknowledge the existence of the virus in Tanzania. Speaking during a Sunday church service, he urged people to take precautions. Never did I say that you should not wear a mask. Do not quote me as saying that.
0: Let me just say that there are some good masks and some are not good. Anu, the continent's cover story for its February 6th issue was the country where COVID doesn't exist, but Tanzanian doctors tell a different story. What did your correspondent undercover in their reporting And I'll note here that you didn't publish the reporter's name in part because there's just so much danger being a journalist in Tanzania.
1: Yes, thanks, George. You're right, we did not name the correspondents because the media landscape in Tanzania right now is not conducive to ad eating reporting, especially about COVID-19. Our correspondent spent three days visiting four of the biggest hospitals in es Salaam and they found out that it's a different case from what you find elsewhere in the country. So elsewhere in Tanzania, you find that life seems to have returned to normal. The bars are open, the markets are open, and the nightclubs are open. But it's a different story in the hospital. The hospitals are chock full of COVID-19 patients. The ICUs are filled with people on oxygen and the hospitals in contrast to the government, are keeping a private tally of the COVID-19 cases that they have. But when our correspondent spoke to doctors, all of them refused to go on the record because of the dangers involved in going against the official government narrative. I mean, the denialism is so terrible to the extent that COVID-19 is not written on death certificate, so the cause of death is always acute pneumonia. And we know for a fact that about five top-level military officials have died of acute pneumonia in recent weeks.
0: One of the most evocative parts about that piece was there's a Tanzanian radio station. Usually right, it spends 10 minutes talking about death announcements. Now it's using 50 minutes to talk about deaths. Yinka, my colleague, Marielle Harris, she's a research associate in our program, she pointed out that Tanzania's opposition to the vaccine threatens the region's march towards herd immunity. And, you know, East African countries could probably ultimately bar travelers from Tanzania because their population is not vaccinated. Since you spend so much time looking at regional economic integration and economies, do you think that this is going to be a problem for Kenya and Uganda and the rest of the region? Thanks, Judd. The East African community
2: is probably the most sort of well-integrated of the various regions across the continent. But this is really going to set things back. We've already had problems, even right at the start of the pandemic, with Uganda worried about drivers coming from Tanzania or going via Kenya. There's a lot of tension already building up. But what this really shows is just how the government of John Magufuli has really changed the way we think about Tanzania, it has just very swiftly gone from this sort of can-do leadership into, a, frankly, just a straight-up authoritarian rule. When you speak to people on the ground in Tanzania, there's a lot of fear, a lot of concern about where the country is going. But it must be noted that it's not just about Magufuli; it's also
0: about the kind of leadership within the ruling party. Mariel wrote a piece, Unfinished Business, Magafuli's Autocratic Rule, which I think previews what the next five years under Magafuli could look like and how it is a real threat to both democracy and governance in Tanzania, but what it means for the region with respect to COVID and the economy. Moki, I don't know if you've been tracking this, but apparently this whole story has been picked up by COVID truthers in the United States. They probably don't even know where Tanzania is, but they're talking about how you know, Magafuli in Tanzania show that vaccines are unnecessary, that COVID is not truly a threat. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. I mean, is this a problem? Can we? Should we counter it? One
3: of the things I think about is that when countries, particularly in Africa, I guess, do things slightly differently or don't follow or toe the global line, it's never very positive. It's never, ever a good thing. And in this particular case, somebody somewhere in the US is saying, hey, look at somewhere in Africa. And everybody points out, well, they don't even know where it is on a map. You know, that's not the point. The point is that this is the world where everybody's talking about polarization. You know, there's just extreme ends of opinion on everything. And whilst I don't personally agree with Michael there's a lot of things that show that's probably not the right approach. But conversely, you could argue that keeping the economy open is actually possibly, potentially, controversially better for Tanzania, which may not be able to afford vaccines. And, you know, it's a different approach. And I think sometimes when we're all looking for everybody to go down one road and when somebody breaks away and doesn't, very much again like Madagascar, in fact, when they came up with their solution, which was the COVID organics, everybody was like very skeptical that, you know, something out of Africa could potentially, you know, maybe be a cure. And just one last point I will make. One thing I have seen on some news reports is that the health ministry are pushing herbal remedies. So are they categorically saying there's no COVID or are they saying here's a solution that A, we can afford, B, we can make? It's a controversial view that I'm having about it. I just think that, you know, we shouldn't always assume that because somebody stepped off the global line that they are therefore wrong.
0: I think it's a, an important view, right? Like, first of all, there is unfortunately a trade-off between economic lockdowns to address the COVID challenge and then what that means for people's livelihoods. I think you can have that debate and try to find ways to manage it without denying COVID exists, right? That's sort of the extreme where Magafuli is. But your point on Madagascar is really interesting. We actually talked about it in an episode last year. I love the way that the AU CDC approached what Madagascar was doing. They didn't say, this is crazy, right? They said, okay, we're going to bring our sciences down, let's test it. Like, that's okay. And like, there could be solutions. But the AU didn't, I think, scold or embarrass or belittle what Madagascar was doing. They took it seriously. Their conclusion was it was not effective. But that's kind of the right approach. Ginka, do you have any response to Moki?
2: Yeah, and it was a very good point she raises, because even though I mentioned both countries together, and just this kind of countries having this problem, they are quite different situations you know, it's very clear that Maghufili is, is more about politics, more about power. And, I mean, this guy has not left the East African region in his entire time in, in office. You know, he's really sort of...
3: Is, is that a bad thing, though? Is that a bad thing?
2: No, no. But here's the, here's the deal. He's paranoid. This is by speaking to people on the ground. This is not just some sort of opinion. You know, you speak to people, there's a whole sort of being... Controlling, making sure that others can't interfere. This is that kind of authoritarian sort of technique where you don't speak to anyone else. You have one or two people that you trust, and then you block people out because you're just very concerned about anyone coming in and messing with your control. And people in the country are basically like, we just have to see this out because, you know, this is Tanzania. It's always going to be CCM power. And even people in the inside of the party are kind of like, well, we just have to see this out. It's not really about some sort of science or denial of science. It's just about control for him. And Madagascar was more about, well, we could come up with our solutions. It didn't, it didn't work out exactly like Judd said. I think it was both the AU and I think the WHO Africa went down there and, and, and tested it. It's a very unique case in, in this situation.
0: Well, and to Anu's point in the very beginning, why the continent did this article is that you have to go undercover, essentially, to do this reporting. That doctors have to lie about the cause of disease that a news correspondent couldn't reveal themselves. I mean, this is bundled up in a whole bunch of issues that really, I think, augur very poorly for Tanzania and, and the spillover will be serious for the region. Anu, is there anything you wanted to add? Yeah, I mean, uh, further to Yinka's point about President Magufuli, it's about
1: control, right? You have the Tanzania Communication Regulatory Authority, which is the regulatory agency that controls communications in Tanzania, and they have warned people to not say anything that goes against the government's position. So you find this denialism to, to an extreme, and you find it so much so that the Catholic Church, which has basically told people that look do not listen to what the government is saying in a recent newsletter that the catholic church sends out in tanzania they they had the headline saying there is corona right so you you have this position where john magufuli as we know is a very, very religious man right and he has said corona cannot survive in the body of christ So it's this opposing views by people who are taking it seriously and uh, the president who insists this is not a threat. And I feel like it's one thing to want to keep the economy open. It's another thing to say that there isn't a problem. I mean, Nigeria, where I'm from, I've tried to balance it. right? People have to work daily. A lot of people cannot afford the luxury of working from home. But there are also measures in place in terms of social distancing, in terms of wearing face masks.
0: Thanks, Anu. So let's move on to the second topic, which is about the economic effects of COVID and whether or not the continent will recover from the recession that it entered last year. First of all, Africa's economic outlook for 2020-2021, 4.2% is where the GDP
1: decline in 2020 happened. This is due to COVID-19. We saw a 4.2% decrease or shrinking of the economy. But the projected outlook for the year 2021 stands at 3.2%. That is the rebound that is being projected.
0: Apparently, Nigeria's just got out of recession and the region as a whole is supposed to recover with a very modest bounce back this year, about 2.7%. And Yinka, this was like your last missive for courts. And I'd love it if you could share your analysis with our listeners. You know, What are the different trajectories both for diversified economies like Kenya or Cote d'Ivoire and then some of the more extractive heavy industries, Nigeria, South Africa?
2: It's just like you, you laid out there. We'll see some recovery but very modest, about 2.7% uh, overall. It's being weighed down really by the big economies, Nigeria, South Africa, who are coming out of this terrible, you know, terrible year that we've had, 2020, but not sort of bouncing right back. And that seems to be because no one's sure about commodity prices recovered in any strong way very quickly. Obviously, Nigeria is very dependent on oil, South Africa also is dependent on commodities, a bunch of commodities. The World Bank basically thinks that African economies that are dependent on commodities are are going to have a very sort of slow recovery. Specifically on the diversified economies, though, you have Kenya, you have Cote d'Ivoire, who have a range of things going on in terms of trade and sort of opening up. The numbers are more optimistic. But you do sort of wonder how, whether the World Bank was kind of, you know, as much as hoping for the best. And all these countries are, unfortunately, still very much dependent on the economies of the wealthier countries recovering as well. So if the US and, and China and the European Union are recovering, but not recovering that quickly, then African countries are, you know, sort of going to
0: probably recover slower than we might have hoped I guess that's where my head is, right? Like, I hope it's true, but I'm really skeptical about this talk about a quick recovery. We just talked about how countries are in their second and third wave of lockdown. Vaccine distribution looks you know, very poor in the region, maybe next year, maybe even 2023. And I just wanted to know maybe from a like from where you sit, do you think that this is right? Like, do you think that the region's gonna bounce back? Are they being too bullish? How does it feel? Like, what is the the state of the economy at the micro level?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure about the World Bank's optimism. I'm not sure I share it either. As a Nigerian living in South Africa, right, these are the two biggest economies in Africa. And there's a sense of hopelessness, especially when you talk to young people. There's There's massive unemployment in both countries. I mean, the IMF recently said that the Naira is overvalued at about 18%. The Nigerian... Bureau of Statistics just came out to say that inflation is at about a five-year high and food prices are rising now more than ever. So I'm not sure that the optimism of the World Bank translates to what people are feeling in their daily lives. In Nigeria, for example, the technology sector is the fastest growing, as Yinka would know, there's like so many interesting companies doing great stuff and attracting global attention. But they also have to contend with the fact that government regulation is stifling a lot of innovation. Last year, a government edict in Lagos essentially killed the ride-hailing business, and this year, the Central Bank of Nigeria has decided to wage war on the Bitcoin business.
0: No, I think that's really helpful, and I assume that we'll see constant revisions of those numbers. And I think both on the podcast, but in some of our other production, we'll continue to cover it. But thanks, guys, for that. Let's move to the last topic. I'm really excited to talk about Africa No Filter's excellent, excellent new report, How Africa Media Covers Africa. And I think it's great, Moki, because so often we talk about how the U.S. and how the international community covers Africa, but you got to the heart of matter, right? Like how Africans portray politics, economic, cultural life in their own countries in the broader region. So I'd love it if you could just walk us through some of the key findings of the report.
3: I think the most important thing for us was that a lot of Africans were used to pointing the finger at the Western media to say it's them. And actually, it turns out it's not so much them. There were a couple of things that we did. We basically spoke to about 65 editors. We researched and looked through over 300 articles in Gosh, I can't remember how many um, publications across 15 countries. So this was quite intense, but it was a very short period of time last year. And there were three key insights that we found. One, that the sources on news on Africa in African outlets are an issue. We actually found out it's about a third, but actually a lot more, comes from Western news sources, mainly because 63% of everybody we spoke to said they do not have correspondence in other African countries. So you're sitting in South Africa, you're reading anything about, you know, Ghana or Nigeria, you are probably reading a Reuters, AFP, BBC piece, or you are watching those outlets. The second key thing we found was the nature of the content actually is what we've come to expect. So if you are sitting in Ghana and you are reading something about Zambia or, you know, I don't know, Tanzania, It's almost 100 percent going to be feeding that negative stereotypical narrative that, you know, that Africans have always belabored. And it's the fact that, you know, it's poverty, it's conflict, it's corruption, it's disease. The nature of the content is it basically feeds the harmful stereotypical narratives. And what we're finding as well, the third key insight was the quality of journalism when it comes to stories on Africa was really worrying. And one of the key things that picked up, particularly in the coverage of NSARS, was that there was very little voice of ordinary citizens. You know, when stories were reported on other countries, it was often just, you know, it was either head of state, the governor, and in the case of Lagos, um, during NSARS, it was really, it was either Buhari or it was, you know, the governor of Lagos that was always quoted. We very rarely heard what people in the streets were feeling. And I think the most worrying thing for us was that When you looked at where African outlets got their news, it was AFP, BBC and Reuters. And that's the quarter of all stories came from them. But the irony is that BBC is not a newswire service. And one of the editors actually told us that her journalists would literally sit in front of the TV or were listening to the radio broadcast and they were typing up their stories based on reports from you know um, global outlets. The challenge we have is that who is writing this Africa story? Like, whose lens are we looking through? I mean, we've spoken to people at the BBC, and they know that there's a story that's written for a, you know international audience that go- gets into the BBC. Sometimes these stories are covered by Africans, and that to me doesn't actually matter who's writing the story. It's who owns the platform. We had a webinar on this, and one of the things that came out as well was that you know somebody said, "Well, are Africans interested?" in African stories, you know, sitting in, you know, Kenya, do I really care what happened in Nigeria? And editors say, yes, they are. But when we asked on the poll, people genuinely were, or people said they were. So I think there's an opportunity. But at the bottom line is, it was economics. You know, media is struggling. You've got to buy stories, you've got to have correspondence. And we don't have a solution for that yet. So let me stop there and see what you have to say.
0: No, I think that's great. And We're going to spend the rest of the episode trying to unpack that. And I thought, Anu, from your perspective at the continent, it would be great to hear how you hear the report and how that relates to what the continent is trying to do. I mean, I think that you've got a great mission, right, to show the best reporting from journalists across Africa. You do cover the continent. You've got great sections in there, not just about hard hitting exposés like Tanzania, but I always love the, you know, welcome to Juba sections, right? The almost like a travel log element to it. And you've got a distribution strategy that I think is unique through WhatsApp. So can you talk a little bit about how you see the continent fitting into what Moki is talking about and what are the sort of things that we could all learn from how continent is doing so far?
1: Yeah, thank you. I mean, to Moki's point about editors in the report saying people in Africa are interested about stories from other African countries, what we found as well is that that is true. People in Africa are interested in knowing what's going on in the rest of the continent. And one of the things we've done that has served us well at the continent is that we have people on the ground in pretty much everywhere that we've reported from. We don't do parachute journalism, right? We have local reporters with skin in the game, people who know the subject matter very well. For example, I could tell you that we've published about 250 different journalists and writers from 40 different countries in the last 10 months. We are distributed in 96 countries, so we know that there's interest not only within Africa, but also outside Africa as well. And one thing that we've taken seriously is the fact that no country is unimportant. The way that foreign correspondence in Africa works is that most people are interested in South Africa, Nigeria, Kenya, and then the occasional dispatches from elsewhere. But we don't think any country is too small. I mean, like you said, Judd, we have articles talking about what you can do when you visit Juba. I'm not sure you'd find that in a lot of other mainstream
0: publications who cover Africa. It's definitely not in the New York Times, like top places to visit.
1: (laughs) No, definitely not.
3: And I do wanna add that, you know, I think we need to be clear that your publication is a pan-African publication. A lot of this research actually was looking at country-specific because the nature of your editorial means that you have to cover the continent. And that's the point we're making, that when African newspapers, as in country-specific newspapers were covering Africa, there was very little coverage. There were some exemplars, there were some exceptions. But when they did cover it, it was primarily, in fact, 26% of the stories we found were in politics and elections, and another 13% were in conflict. So we weren't getting the human interest
0: soft stories. Yeah. So what about like, uh, I don't know, Mookie, like what about like the nation group, right?
3: Well, that's because they are some exemplars, and that nation is one of them, because the nation actually has their sort of um, nation Africa. That's not the norm. The norm was very much very limited coverage. If it was, it was events driven. So it was an, you know, it was election. It was, you know, Tigray. It was, you know, um, Uganda. But it was very little human interest um, stories, very few stories on creativity, on innovation, on just the things that make us human. We are not just politics and elections. And invariably the stories that got covered about the elections, because at the time we did it, there were five countries going through elections. And I think only two of them got the news and they were the ones that were going through political conflict. So it seems as if there's either a disconnect between what editors are saying and what they're actually publishing, or it's just the information they get.
0: So Yinka, you know, you just completed a remarkable run at Quartz Africa. You maybe want to sort of explain how you think that organization fits into the different sort of categories that we're talking about. But you talked under your editorship all the time about culture and about creativity, and particularly on innovation. And I've said this before, but I think you did a great job for Western audiences. i love you to hear how African audiences read it, but you did a huge service in terms of dismantling stereotypes about Africa. And many of your correspondents you know, now work at some of the top papers all over the world. So how did you define your audience? How do you think about this conversation and getting you know, more diversity into the marketplace of ideas? First of all, you understand the realities of the business,
2: right? I've been a journalist for a very long time, and I understand the realities of the business. I also understand the realities of the business for a newspaper in an African country. I don't expect a newspaper in Senegal to have a bunch of correspondents across Africa. It would be ideal. I'd want that to happen. But, you know, this is just the reality of what Bidia is. Editors will say... People are not interested because yeah, they can't afford to get correspondence there. The African continent almost as a as a concept isn't an African concept. It's uh it's it's from outside. The whole idea of thinking about Africa really is something that has come externally for the most part. So it's just kind of like all these editors or all these thinkers in these various countries are just Probably don't think very much about countries that are not to their immediate neighbors. And yet, we know, thanks to technology, and by technology, I mean the internet in, in particular, that things are changing. People are beginning to think about uh, countries far away from them. We know that because of things like Nollywood and things like pop music, like Afrobeat and com music from South Africa. You know, like people are starting to ask about people in other countries now because of entertainment initially beyond, as uh, Muki would say, uh, just politics and elections and lots of sort of national stereotypes. There's a huge opportunity here to get this balance between, as you say, opening Western audiences, so to speak, to the different types of stories about Africa, but also a recognition of a a growing and increasingly large African diaspora Africa is a huge continent. It takes half a day to get from Lagos to to Johannesburg. So it's it's not a surprise that uh, there's not that natural interest. But it's changing, and that's kind of what I'm, I'm optimistic about.
3: Yeah, I was just going to add, you know, what, you know to what Inka was saying about, you know, th- you know, the optimism and seeing this just a growing interest, because the one thing we did find that, you know, South Africa, Iran, was the one country, it didn't have an event, there wasn't an election, there wasn't a specific thing that you, know, that, you know, an event that was driving coverage about it, but it was the one country that was probably covered the most or that appeared in the most different countries. So people know about South Africa and have an interest in South Africa. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that South Africa pushes tourism. It actively pushes and markets itself. And, you know, when we think about solutions, um, you know, around this, yes, we need to trigger that interest and people need to want to, to know. And, you know, you'll, you'll only hop on a plane to go to South Africa from Nigeria if you're interested. So I think we as Africans need to help ourselves because even though Africa might be a construct, an external construct, it is what we are. We are Africans and there is more that connects us, connects us than there is that separates us. The Africa continental free trade area, that agreement that's coming into place, if we are going to start trading with each other, if that thing has any iota of success, we have got to learn to trust each other. And the only way we'll do that is if we understand each other and we know each other. And right now, that's not the case.
0: I think that's 100% right. And I just want to build on something that you said, Moki, and Yinka, which is Culture and pop culture. And one of the things I think probably South Africa has going for it, it doesn't have as big of Afrobeats stars as Nigeria. I'm sure I'm going to get in trouble for saying that. But DSTV, right? Like DSTV and multi choice, like especially for Anglophone countries, they're learning about South Africa through South African television shows and, you know, Big Brother South Africa. And that global reach makes people curious that the places become familiar. And we don't talk enough about Africa's soft power, country-specific soft power, in terms of binding countries together. But then also, this is a different conversation, but I'm always interested in what that means in terms of foreign policy. Anu, what are your reactions?
1: Yeah, I mean, you're right. South Africa promotes itself a lot with soft power tools like DSTV are multi-choice, and people definitely know about the country, right? I mean, it's one of the ways that Nigeria as well counterbalances the narrative about it, right? Because most of the narrative about Nigeria is it's a country of scammers, and it's a country filled with corruption of government officials, right? And it's like, yes, there's corruption of government officials, but there's also people doing interesting things, right? There's young people. Right, there's also Burna Boy. Exactly, there's Burna Boy, there's Whiskey, there's there's young Nigerians building a company like Paystack that was acquired for over $200 million by, by Stripe, right? So it's it's I, I think there's more to Africa than just like the conflict and the usual, right? And one of the things that needs to happen is that we need more innovative storytelling by Africans, right? And I, I think one of the major problems with that is that finance... I, I mean, I read the African No Future report and a lot of people said we don't have enough money to undertake this. I mean, foreign correspondence is, is kind of expensive, right? And one way that we've gotten around it at the continent is instead of sending people all over the place, why don't we look for p- talent that is already existing in this country, right? I mean, there's talent everywhere. We we get an, a lot of pitches. We get a lot of people writing to us that we want to write this about their country, right? And one thing about, as a, one thing as a journalist in Africa that I love most is there's an abundance of stories, right? There's an abundance of stories. And you just need the, the time, uh, you just need the money, and sometimes you just need the courage as well to say that, yes, we are going to put a story about uh, Juba in, for two pages in a small newspaper that has only 30 pages, right? It's a decision that some editors or an editorial team would have cut off. But we are like, there's more to Africa than just conflicts and politics. So we need to focus more on soft power. The thing about
2: the soft power thing is it, it's, it's two sides of a, of, a, of a coin, right? Where one side is the, is the culture and the talent that we talk about, the other side is the distribution. And you mentioned DSTV, but also social media and the internet have done this thing where just young people's talent across the continent you know, you know, we're get, we're, get, we're starting to see it. There was a time we couldn't have seen this stuff. That, you know, um, we, we you would have had to have waited for someone to send you a a, a DVD or a VC or even a VHS tape if you're old enough to remember what those are. <laughs> um, you know, so what,
3: what's that then? What's that?
2: <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
3: So
2: <laughs> so 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 the so the, the internet, uh, internet technologies. You know, if you want to use a broad term, has has kind of opened um this this stuff to people look at tiktok right look at the the people just doing so much fun stuff on tiktok in various african countries
0: oh my god you know how many uh maven songs i see people dance to (laughs) you know Uh, oh my god and you're totally right you could my network the great, amazing journalists that I meet, including Anu, we met on Twitter. I mean, it's, it's a great source for me to learn who is the, the greatest folks. And I don't need a gatekeeper to do that, right? I just observe who's saying smart things, and then hopefully we can connect. But with, with time running out, Moki, key recommendations, like where do we need to take this next?
3: A couple of things an Afkano filter has come up with is one, we are going to create a story agency, you know, one that focuses on soft news. Um, And we're starting off piloting it in 12 countries. And the idea is to be able to feed the kind of soft content into these publications that say they don't have the finances to buy in content or to have correspondence. That's one. And I think even a simpler solution is that when we, we brought journalists together or editors together to discuss this issue... One of them at the end said, oh, yeah, you know, we don't really get a chance to sort of meet and connect very much across countries. There used to be the African Media Initiative, which, you know, I think it's died to death now, which... Did bring editors together because there was a clear opportunity for people to swap stories. It doesn't have to be a monetary um, exchange because you're running a publication, you're looking at Nigerian stories, you're running a publication in, in um, Zimbabwe, you're looking at Zimbabwe stories, we can swap. So I think that networking and understanding that there is an opportunity to fix this. But what I think the report did and why I, I I talk about it is that it actually presented the problem because a lot of people didn't really think about it and didn't think about it as an issue. And the reason why we think it's an issue is because until we as Africans don't know each other and know more about a Kenyan or a Zimbabwean or a Nigerian than we do about Americans and Trump, then we're never going to be united. As a continent. And I think the power of this continent lies in our ability to be a single unit, a market of 1.3 billion rather than a market of, you know, two, three, four, five million in Botswana. You know, we, we need to come together. So I think the work that we're doing in Africa No Filter to try and shift narratives within the continent is really, really important.
0: Well, you know, I'm a big fan of Africa No Filter. So I hope you and I can find a way to continue to promote what you're doing and expose it uh, because it's essential work. So thank you so much for sharing those insights and in doing this endeavor. And let me just thank Yinka and Anu for joining us as well. And we'll see everyone in two weeks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks.